And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were le- <coughs> excuse me, led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thank you, Jamie. Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, one of the reasons I thank God for the day of Pentecost is that there is power for us today, right now, like our service, this, this time that we have together matters immensely, and there's power behind it because God is present with us. Just as present as when Jesus was walking with his disciples, he is present with us by his Holy Spirit right now. Consider that. Jesus didn't leave us as orphans, but he poured out the spirit that was promised so that we today can hear from God, so that he can apply this word to our hearts, and that we can know that this event, the most significant event in history, matters for me right now, today. Matters for the sins that I've committed this week, matters for every detail of my life this week. I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. He's with us, amen? And I'm grateful because I'm not alone in doing this. I've been asking God to help me. And what does he do when I ask for help? He sends the Holy Spirit to speak and to move. And I'm asking him to do that. Let's just pray one more time and ask him to move. Father, you've given us your spirit. And we depend on your spirit now for help to enlighten our hearts. And God, would you empower me to be a clear and bold witness 
of all that you've done. And would you show us by your spirit again the incredible love and grace that you've poured out on us in Jesus and his death on the cross. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. This is the most significant event in history, and yet we can grow callous to it. We hear the, the phrase, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, over and over, to the point that it's, it's just another saying. It doesn't capture us. But this week, I was captured afresh. I was brought to my knees in worship as I read those words again. And I'm, I want today for us to rediscover the significance of this cross, to be freshly moved by God's love. I want us to, to ask the question, what, is it, what does it mean, this man's death 2,000 years ago, what does it mean for us right now? What does it communicate about God and how he feels about you in this moment? That's what I want to try to answer today. There are three sections in this text. We're going to see the road of grief, the Via Della Rosa. We're going to see Jesus' crucifixion, and we're going to see the promise of paradise. And I want to try to show you that it's that road, and it's that crucifixion that opened the way for anyone who clings to Jesus, opened the way into paradise. But before we go into the text, just to quickly want to remind you of the context. So we've just seen the trial. Jesus was brought before the Roman court, and ultimately, though they tested him, he was declared innocent. They had nothing on him, and yet, because of the persistence of the Jewish leaders, because of the, the weak leadership of Pilate, he says, okay, I'll punish him. I'll punish him, and then I'll seek to release him. We know from the gospel accounts that that punishment was a brutal Roman flogging. This is uh, something that they, they would take a whip called the cat of nine tails, and they tied into a, pieces of stone that would tenderize the flesh, and sharp pieces of metal and bone that would cut and sink deeply into the flesh and tear as they pulled it back for another strike. Jesus was bloodied and beaten. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head and smashed in. And imagine the scene. He's standing before his people, exhausted emotionally, physically. And they're shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! After they've just declared him innocent. Finally, Pilate gives the man over to their wishes. Let's look at verse 26. It says, They led him away. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This is Jesus traveling the road of grief. This is what the church has called the Via Dolorosa. John's gospel says that Jesus bore his own cross as he went out. So it seems from this account and John's account that he must have carried it until he could carry it no more. And they say that Roman crosses could have weighed anywhere from 165 to 300 pounds, depending on whether he's just got the cross beam on him or the entire weight of the cross. 
He's got a rough hewn, massive piece of lumber sitting upon his freshly torn flesh. And he's trying to make his way half mile up the hill to Golgotha where he would be killed. They speculate that he fell along the way and this is why they would have grabbed the man, Simon of Cyrene, to help Jesus carry it the rest of the way. I don't think that these details are insignificant. Luke has told us in the first chapter that he's written an orderly account, a historical account. He's gotten eyewitness stories. He may have gone to Simon Cyrene himself, who I believe became a believer later on. We're told that he was the father of a couple disciples in Mark. I think this man is is known by the church. So Jesus is highlighting, this is, a, this is an account you can find out for yourself that these events happened. But along with the significance of these de- details is, is another important significant, uh, another detail that I think Luke is trying to show us. This, this coincidental encounter is a sign for Christians for all time of what we are called to do as we follow Jesus, that we too must take our cross as we follow him. He promised us, this is not an easy road to follow me. You must take up your cross, Luke 9. You must die like me, and it would cost the disciples his life. And this man who who was interrupted, his day was interrupted traumatically, is now entering into the the rest of his life, the experience of the rest of his life, that he is going to be taking up his cross daily, and he's going to have a a reminder of that. I carried the cross. I now have to keep on carrying the cross. And it's a sign to us, too. We carry the cross of Jesus. We're told in verse 27 that there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for, for him. Typically, a crucifixion would stir up a crowd, but, but usually not to this degree. It, it might cause someone to glance and say, ah, oh, who is it this time? Maybe they're shielding the eyes of their children and, and trying to get away from the scene. But in this case, for the most loved and hated man in Israel's history, the crowds are gathering in number. They're coming behind him in the streets. It's a great scene. And people are wailing. Women are mourning and lamenting this moment. The text says that there were many women there. And we don't know exactly who these women were, but we know from other texts that up to the point of the cross, there were women who were following him. They would be standing around the cross. Some of those named are the Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, among others. And contrary to the disciples, the men who had deserted Jesus, these women were close to him. They kept close all the way, and we can assume that these are some of the women who were there mourning. But notice what Jesus says to them in response to their mourning. He says in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! 
into the hills. Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus only says a few things leading up to his cross. We need to pay careful attention to what he says. Here he's alluding to Zechariah 12.10. When they, that is the inhabitants of Jerusalem, look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. But Jesus here turns the lament away from himself and towards the people. He says, don't mourn for me right now. You need to mourn for yourself and for your children. Why? Because of judgment coming on the people. He warned them, Luke 19, 43, of the destruction coming on Jerusalem. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here again, Jesus is alluding to the horrors of the day of judgment coming on Israel. In that day, the barren, Jesus says, will be the ones called blessed because they will not have to be watching their children killed. On that day, the people are going to be saying, put us out of our misery. That's the kind of suffering he says is coming on them. Jesus, in verse 31, he he gives this this picture. It's kind of confusing, but, but what he's saying with the wood is green and the wood is dry is that... If these things happen, he's saying, he's making a comparison. If these things happen when the wood is green, that is when an innocent man is being killed and condemned to death. What is going to happen when God allows the full wrath of Rome to fall on you, a wicked people, when the wood is dry? If you think this is bad, just wait until the wood is dry and judgment is poured on you. God's wrath would soon be poured out on them because of their rejection of his son Jesus. There's something that they did not understand, and that is that they were, in that moment, under judgment. They looked at Jesus, they thought, oh, what a tragic death, that this innocent man would die. But they didn't yet understand the significance of that moment. They didn't understand why he was there. Timothy Keller helped me a lot this week. He says, Jesus is saying here, you see me going to my death, and you don't understand that you too are in the same boat. You don't understand that you too, as it were, are dead men walking. You don't understand judgment hangs over you. You don't understand That on that day, the mountains and hills will fall on you. This is Jesus here talking about judgment day, looking at them and saying, until you weep for yourselves, you cannot weep for me right. Until you understand what's wrong with you, until you understand your own danger, until you understand you're under sentence and you're under condemnation and that every person is, you don't understand what I'm doing. You don't understand what this is about. Keller says, until you weep for yourselves, you can't weep for me properly. 
the people were under sentence. And he's speaking this to some of his beloved disciples. All people are under judgment. And that's why Jesus was there in that moment, going to that cross. Let's keep going. Verse 32 tells us another important detail. 30, uh, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. In this whole narrative, Luke is going to allude to many scriptures, and he's, he's doing it to show us that this is all in fulfillment of the scriptures. These very events are fulfilling what God has promised would come about. Jesus here is the suffering sermon, servant. Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors. He was not a criminal, but he was numbered with the criminals, just as Isaiah said, prophesied. So we've seen Jesus on the road of grief, and now we're going to see the crucifixion. Verse 33 says, When they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, it's a hill shaped like a skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There they crucified him. All the gospel accounts give a very brief sentence, similar to this one. They crucified him. And we today in the 21st century don't comprehend the horrors of that reality. I read a scientific article this week about the crucifixion just to get a little bit more understanding of, of what this type of death was like. I read that the Persians invented it as in 300 BC and it was perfected in 100 BC by the Romans and it's believed that it's likely the the most painful death that anyone has invented, any human has invented. It would bring about death through suff suffocation, through loss of body fluids, and through your organs just shutting down. The article puts it like this. Someone nailed to a crucifix with their arms stretched out on either side could expect to live for no more than 24 hours. Seven-inch nails would be driven through the wrists so that the bones there could support the body's weight. That nail would sever the median nerve, which not only caused immense pain, but would have paralyzed the victim's hands. The feet were then nailed to the upright part of the crucifix so that the knees were bent at around 45 degrees. And as we know from the story, to speed the death, the soldiers would often break the legs of their victims so that they couldn't use their thighs to push up to try to get a breath. Once the legs gave out, the weight would transfer to the arms. And slowly, one by one, the sockets would give way till their arms are lengthened, it says, six to seven inches. After they cannot hold their weight with their legs, trying to push themselves to get a breath. They can't hold their weight up with their arms any longer. They're forced to just pull themselves up with their chest until they're in a constant state of inhalation. 
Suffocation would usually follow, but it would also come in other ways as the lack of oxygen in the blood would, would cause damage to tissues and blood vessels, allowing fluid to, fluid to diffuse out into the lungs and in the sac of the heart, which would just make it all the more difficult to breathe, and ultimately the heart would stop pumping. Our innocent Lord endured all of this. And listen to what he says in response. Curse you, wicked men. No. No, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of man can be mocked and killed and beaten unjustly and respond with blessing, with prayers of intercession for his murderers? We've been saying it again and again through this trial. Any of us who receive this sort of unjust cursing and punishment and mocking, what do we do? We're so quick to retaliate. We are the ones who say, curse you, wicked man. And yet Jesus breathes out blessing, forgiveness. When I read this, this plea for forgiveness this week, for the hundredth time, I stopped in utter amazement. I just couldn't help but shout, what kind of man is this? I was pacing around in my living room. Who are you, God? What kind of God are you that would do this? How can Jesus respond with this sort of grace? How can he respond calling out to God the Father in this moment, pleading on his murderer's behalf, forgive them, Lord, release them. Do not hold this against them, Father. Well, it's one that had come for the purpose of taking that punishment upon himself. It's one who had come so that the judgment would not be laid upon those men and women, but upon himself. It's one who was on the mission, the mission of God. God so loved the world that he sent his son, that we would not perish in our sin, but that we would have everlasting life. This is the kind of man who was there. He actually had authority by virtue of his death to forgive sins. <laughs> These were not empty words. He wasn't just saying, oh Lord, I wish that you would forgive them. No, he was there actually performing the act that provided the possibility for forgiveness. The means of forgiveness. That the father could say, yes, son, I will. The, the father would look down on those wicked men and women. Anyone who would come to Jesus in faith and say, yes, I will. Because... This was the man there on the mission of God to save those sinners and to save us sinners. We're told that they cast lots to divide his garments. Verse 34. This is another fulfillment of a famous messianic scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18 says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Friends, they, they had stripped Jesus to the point of being naked or nearly naked. 
and before them were the Roman soldiers playing games for his clothes. They're mocking him. The mocking continued as Jesus hung there naked, struggling to breathe, crying. I imagine just weeping in pain. Verse 35 says, the people stood by watching, but the rulers, that is the Jewish religious leaders, they scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers followed suit as they mocked him, coming up with with wine, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. This is why he was being crucified for this claim. And they mocked him for it. They, they claimed, using all these messianic titles, they said, save yourself if you are the Christ. How similar are their words to Satan's who, in his temptation, said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, make bread, do it. One by one, they mocked him. Verse 31 says that they offered him sour wine, this is not a compassion, act of compassion, but a, another form of mockery. One scholar says that this sponge that they used to, to give him this sour wine may have been a Roman sanitation sponge that they used in the bathroom. The sour wine was a cheap drink. And they would offer to him as mockery, King of the Jews! They gave him drink to prolong his suffering. What they didn't understand is that this man could have at any moment hit abort. At any second. He could have hit abort when he was being tempted in the garden. He could have have hit abort when he was being tempted in the wilderness. He He could have hit abort when he was walking the way of grief. At any moment, Jesus could have hit abort with legions of angels behind him ready to slay the enemies in front of him. He had that authority. And yet he stayed on the cross. Why did he do this? Why did he stay on the cross? Because he came to give his life. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Imagine that. He had all authority from God, the Creator. He had all authority as Himself divine to get down off the cross, and yet He stays giving his life willingly for you and I, for the men and women before him. He was there in obedience to his father, accomplishing a divine purpose that no one there understood. They thought that this death was proving that he was not the Messiah, but in fact, his death was only proving that he was. He was fulfilling everything that the scriptures had promised, everything that God had planned for us.
He did it so that he could offer salvation, so he could offer forgiveness to any who would come to him, which is what we are about to see in the promise of paradise. Look at verse 39 with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us too. But the other, verse 40, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The man, I'm not sure if he knew something about his life, if he had spent time around him, if he had heard stories about him, but here as he's watching Jesus suffer, as he's watching him pronounce blessing and intercession upon his, his murderers, he says, this man is innocent. There's nothing wrong with him. And yet you and I, we are justly here. The judgment coming on us right now is deserved. This is the first place the man has gone right. He understands in that moment, I am justly dying for my sins. I am under judgment for what I have done. But he says to Jesus, he turns and he says, 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Rather than a mocking, his, mocking his ability to save in this moment, he turns to him and says, save me. Remember me. This is not only a, a confession of faith that Jesus is ki a king with the kingdom, it's also a plea for mercy a plea for him to be saved. Oh Lord, save me when you enter your kingdom. How does this man have this kind of faith in this moment to see a dying man as king, the one able to save him? But he does, and he makes a plea. And this is, this is a final snapshot that Luke is giving us. These words are actually... Uh, they're unique to Luke's gospel. It's a final snapshot of the first becoming last and the last becoming first. It's not the, the Jewish religious leaders who are coming into the kingdom with faith. It's not the older brother who had done everything right like the prodigal son story. No, it was the prodigal. It was those who understood that they are not worthy, that they are under judgment and in need of a savior. The men out there mocking him don't see themselves under judgment in need of a savior, but, Jesus, but this man, this criminal, he says, I am, and I need this man. 43, look at Jesus' amazing response to the man. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. trying to breathe, totally weak. I, I'm sure you know what it's like to be weak and at the point of just like exhaustion. You feel like you have nothing left. Jesus breathes out 
a pronouncement of this man's salvation. <laughs> Jesus had been put on trial, and the judge said, okay, give him over to death. And yet this man, Jesus, who is dying on the cross, even in his last breaths, he's pronouncing a judgment. You're mine, and you will be with me forever. Can you imagine? He was the one judged, but he was actually the judge. He was the one with the keys of the kingdom. He was the one that had keys to open paradise in that moment. You see, the way of grief and the crucifixion was Jesus opening the way of paradise for anyone who, like the criminal, clinged to him in faith. They thought that he was, that they had showed that he was not the Messiah, but Jesus is right here showing all of us we can be confident that he is the one who has authority to save. As he offers this man paradise. What is paradise? Jesus was going there, he says. He's about to enter his kingdom. And I believe that contrary to what some theologians have, have taught, I, I don't think he was going into hell for three days, but I think in that day he was going to be through his death, entering his glory, and three days again, three days later, rising again in, a bod in bodily form. Jesus was going to paradise, and he could say, today, man, you will be with me there. There is not one moment from your death to paradise that we will not be together there. That's confidence. Truly, man, you will be with me there. Even while Jesus was dying a gruesome death, he was paving the way to heaven. He was inaugurating in that moment a new period of salvation where anyone who claimed, claimed, clinged to him could have confidence that they will enter paradise with our Lord Jesus, with the King. That's why Jesus stayed on the cross, friends. He stayed on the cross to open the way of paradise, to open up heaven for you and I. I think it's so interesting that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates the Hebrew word for garden, paradise. There's a, there's a comparison in this translation to paradise and the garden. Jesus is making a promise of restored Eden for this man who deserves nothing but death apart from God. He's saying, I'm going to welcome you into my garden into the place where the righteous dwell. This is such good news, friends. This is such good news. What kind of man weeps over others as he goes to his grave? What kind of man says, Father, forgive them to his enemies? What kind of king invites a wicked man into his kingdom? He's our king. He's matchless. There's no one like him. That's why we sing those sort of songs. Jesus, there's no one like you. 
That's why we make much of Jesus, as Tony said earlier. You are the one who can save us. You are the way into paradise. Friends, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how he feels towards you today, I want you to see this Jesus hanging on a cross. For you and I, I want you to see this Jesus hanging on the cross. If you're suffering today and you're questioning, Lord, how could you do this? How could you be good and cause me to suffer? I want you to look at this Jesus who entered your suffering so that you would not have to end your life of suffering in death, but that you could have paradise, that you could be brought back into the Garden of Eden and have everything restored. How can we question the Lord's love for us? How can we question God's love when he makes plans for his enemies to forgive us of our sins? He takes our sin. He takes our sorrows. He bore it all on the cross. He laid it in the grave and tucked it away there forever so that we who cling to him would not be punished under judgment but could have the eternal paradise that only he had earned. My desire today is that all of us here would understand a few different things. From the young and the old in here, teenagers in this room, we are under judgment. All of us. Every single one of us are under judgment. And unless we cling to this man, Jesus, we will die like him. But that's not what God wants for you. God wants life for you. He wants paradise for you. He invites you to come to him in faith. And I can't convince you of that. I can plead with you to turn in repentance and faith like this criminal it's only God who can put upon your heart this great reality. I'm just like the criminal. I deserve to hang on a cross like him. Only he can convince you that your sin deserves that death. And only God can convince you that Jesus is the one who is able to take the punishment. But I'm pleading right now with everyone in this room to just look, look upon this man. Our sin pierced him. We put him to the cross. He is our means of salvation. I want you to confess again or for the first time that Jesus is your King and Lord. And I want you to be confident that if you do, he will welcome you into paradise. That you don't have to fear condemnation and death. But you can be confident like that man. Truly today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. He's not dead, friends. Pentecost Sunday reminds us that he ascended into heaven after he rose on the third day. And he dumped upon us the Holy Spirit who teaches us today, who impresses these things on our hearts and makes each one of us say, yes, Lord, you are my salvation. He will come again and he will judge the living and dead. 
And I pray that we will all cling to him before that day. I want us to pray. Father, we just witnessed, we just read about your great love for us. And I ask, Lord, that you would impress that afresh on our hearts. The cross of Jesus is God's great love poured out on us. It is your love, it's your mercy. Lord, would you open eyes and ears in this room? Would you open hearts to believe, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, that we would cling to this Jesus and worship this Jesus who alone opens the way of paradise. We love you, our King Jesus. Thank you for what you did for us. There's no one like you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.